G'day, mate. Welcome to another episode of King of the Ride podcast. I'm your host, I am Ted King, and we've got another great one in store today. G'day, of course, that is my my poor attempt at an Aussie accent. Our guest today is going to put me to shame in that department because, well, hers is authentic. Tiffany Cromwell is our guest on today's pod, Australian long-standing member of the highest echelon of women's cycling, a proven race winner, a staunch and loyal teammate, a member of the 2019 Australian national team headed to the world championships, gunning hard for a spot at the 2020 Tokyo Olympics. She's a fashionista. She is adept in the kitchen as she is on the bike. That, friends, is Tiffany in 10 seconds. Just wait until we go into detail over the course of the next 40 minutes on this pod. We're going to talk a whole host of topics, not least of which, what are the subtle and what are the obvious changes the male-dominated UCI could institute just to make our sport just a little bit better? We're going to talk about what she sees worldwide amid her travels and how she is enjoying dipping her toe into gravel, who are her influences in life, and where she sees this sport as a whole on the roadside, on the gravel side, going from here. It has been awesome catching up with Tiffany. It has been incredible catching up with my female friends in the Peloton and across the sport. I get that note from you out there, our loyal listeners. More women on the pod. I completely agree. So I'm pumped that Tiffany included our last three guests consecutively, our three powerful, eloquent, insightful, interesting female cyclists doing incredible things on two wheels. We are now firing off rapid summer episodes as we are in peak season. Travel is at an all-time high. Just last week, of course, was Leadville, I suppose two weeks ago, where we chatted with Rebecca Rush. And then after a bit of high altitude getting my butt kicked, Laura and I were off to Crested Butte for some single track R&R before heading up to Steamboat and SBTG RVL, Steamboat Gravel. Mark, Amy, Ken... Those are the three masterminds behind the inaugural SBTGRVL event. And as I've said in other media, it's so cool that we are in a time for gravel that there are so many events in the calendar. So many, in fact, that it can be hard to choose from, which to attend, which to prioritize. Each event has its flavor, its theme, its characteristic that makes it different from the rest. And given how many are on the calendar, the best, so far as I see it, will boom. The momentum behind this first year's event, getting 1,500 people to the start line in Steamboat, the full weekend expo. Man, it was a blast. SBT has been a priority from the beginning of the season. We're going to now delve into how the race went down in one minute or less. Knowing that it's at high altitude, knowing that it's high exposure and a whole bunch of bruising climbs, loose Colorado gravel, met with cattle farming roads, it was going to be tough and it was going to be fast. So after a gut-busting Leadville at 12,000 feet, where I was effectively breathing out of a straw and suffering like a dog, after my bike arrived to Colorado, broken, courtesy of some violent shipping by the folks in shipping, I was forced to take a couple days off the bike. All the while, Cannondale, Zip, Cork, and SRAM, they came up huge with some next-day shipping efforts to deliver a stunning new Cannondale Synapse for yours truly, but that rest, I think, really paid off. Thanks to Orange Peel and Steamboat, Brock and his crew are an amazing shop. Thank you to their 11th hour build. Definitely pay them a visit if you are on two wheels and find yourself in Steamboat. 
Anyway, right from the get-go in the race, I felt good. Knowing that it's 140 miles, knowing the tall, tall toll that altitude can take. Playing the patient game was going was gonna to pay dividends, so I only started to show my cards halfway through the race and beyond. The fireworks came out on the 10-mile climb up to mile marker 100. As is the case in so many other gravel races, this is one of attrition. So our group of four passed a very impressive Jeff Kabush coming off Breck Epic just, just one week prior. No, sorry, one day prior. And then finally blazed through a solo Tom Danielson, at which point the front group was DK winner Colin Strickland, Land Run winner Payson McKelvin, former World Tour pro Jacob Rathy, and yours truly. Colin looked around. And he echoed the sentiments of all of us. He said, well, boys, there are no other three I'd rather be racing against than you all. That, my friends, is the gravel spirit. Talking amongst the group, deciding to stop as a group in the final aid station, that community, despite the competition, that is the gravel spirit once again. So into the final showdown, a flat tire, an empty tank of energy and some legacies and cramps whittled it down so that I was feeling my oats at the end. I pushed it home for the solo win, pumped with that result, taking the inaugural SBT gravel after a very busy year on my calendar. A year of so many almosts, a really fun year. It was awesome to take this win. That is my mid-August highlight in, in, let's say, three minutes or less now. Steamboat allowed me to catch up with Tiffany, who was here for the race, but also getting ready for the Colorado Classic. On a final related note, people are always asking me how they can be faster on the bike. Back in the day, we used to have to experiment constantly with what works. We would often go with the tried-and-true pasta more often than not. But now you don't have to always be experimenting. Instead, you can just chat live with the experts at The Feed who will dial in exactly what you need and show you how to use it. Not only do they carry my full lineup of untapped products, they have over 100 brands and offer everything from the best in supplements to the latest in recovery modalities. Heck, they even sell ketone esters as are currently supplying half of the world tour, so it seems... Just head over to thefeed.com slash king to save 15% on a box curated by yours truly. Or use the code KING10 and save 10% on everything else store-wide. Definitely check them out. Ladies and gentlemen, that is it for me. I now lead you into the conversation with Tiffany Cromwell. Welcome to King of the Ride Podcast. Thanks for having me. Um, let's jump into the way, way back machine. Um, looks like you got into cycling the way a lot of Australians do, which is by way of the track. Um, what is your, what was the, the introduction to cycling for you? Yeah, so with me, cycling kind of, I like to say cycling found me versus I found cycling. You know, I was always a very sporty person, but we have back then it's still kind of is happening in a different way as a talent search program where the sports institutes go around to schools and search you know do basic fitness tests and can look at some 
basic numbers like as far as you can go in a beep test or as high as you can jump or as tall as you are. And from those very basic numbers, they can say, okay, you got the potential to be X, Y, and Z. Uh-huh. With me, it's like, I guess, because I'm a good endurance, they said, oh, you could be a good cyclist potentially. So come out to the velodrome and come try. So here I was, my very first introduction. All right, here's a bike, no gears, banking of, you know, what tracks velodromes are like. You know, they're pretty steep if you've never been inside of one and, and go right quick, around. What age is this when they're doing the, the scouting, so to speak? I was at 12, so just started high school. Okay. Yeah. So, and then, um, yes, yeah, so I came in, rode the velodrome. like, oh, pretty intimidating, but went all right. Did, I think, two sessions we did like that. And then they put us in the lab to do a VO2 max. VO2 max test and then from there it was like all right it was like myself and I think about 10 other kids all from different schools similar situation got given you know introduced into um, the program and yeah the rest is history so we started together you know on the velodrome I guess because it's a much more controlled environment Um, it's a great place to learn skills and everything else so it went from you know just track cycling learning pedaling efficiency and mucking around in the middle of the velodrome with like, you know, knocking each other around, picking up bottles, basic things. And a few more months down the track, we would then went onto the road. So with, you know, just riding around in parking lots to learn clip in, clip out and, and yeah, and then just progress from there. No kidding. So, I mean, coming from the American perspective, we were, we have such a participatory youth sports program it's like if you want to play baseball go play baseball soccer basketball hockey whatever cycling um is there anything about that the scouting program that's um sort of keeps you at arm's distance i mean what if you say what if you say i really want to get into cycling and you don't have the vo2 or i really want to get into basketball and your 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 jump isn't what the rest of your friends is like yeah i think with with sport in Australia, um, it's not a factor. Like this was just one way that they're trying to find talent that maybe people didn't realise yeah. or maybe, you know, find people that wouldn't have even thought about that sport. Like, for example, I started in basketball. Mm-hmm. Before that, I was doing ballet, mm-hmm. you know. So there's plenty of options. There's so many sports in Australia, like swimming, basketball, netball, cricket, yeah. AFL, you know, you name it. And there's plenty of ways to get started in those. There's like cycling, they also have come and try days. And I know I have a feeling since before – so the way I came through it was they came to the schools. Now they ask people to come and try out and say, you know, because there was a great, greater failure rate with um, just a, hey, come do this sport. Like for example, I was the only one who went as far as I did yeah. with the talent search program. But we're very lucky in Australia that, you know, the government is so behind it and schools, it's very normal to be out playing sport all the time. There's ec- extracurricular activities as uh-huh. well, you know, after school sport, weekends. So we got a huge amount of options to try. It's just the talent search program is just another way to get in there if you happen to have, you know, certain attributes in sure. your physiology. Makes sense. Yeah, I remember coming to Sun Tour in about <laughs> 2008 and flipping through the channels in the hotel room and everything was sports. Yeah. And it was, it was outstanding, including some American NFL. Yeah, um, <laughs> How about upbringing? Um parents were they into cycling were they into endurance sports or siblings or anything like that so as a family we were always into sports but never cycling so Mm -hmm. you know like it was normal to run around you know on bikes in the neighborhood and stuff so or sometimes do a family ride down to the beach or something but not in the level of competitive cycling so definitely was a completely new sport for us but sport was very much in the family like as I said, basketball before, that was the main sport, even though none of us are tall. So it's kind of weird that <laughs> we were such a basketball family. Like 
dad was coaching for a long time with basketball. I think he played when he was younger. Uh, my mum played when she was younger and also did a lot of different sports. Never like at the highest of levels, but you know, like at a kind of club level. Um, and then I have two brothers as well and they both played basketball. It was the main sport, but then also I've dabbled in so many other sports. Like one brother's much, much older, so I didn't really follow what he did when he was younger. But the one who's two years older than me, like he was doing everything. He played squash, he was running, cricket, mm-hmm. you know, like most of us. Um, just test out everything. So yeah. definitely sport was in the blood. Nice. So welcome to Steamboat. I've been here for an extra two days, so I feel like a local and I can welcome you here who've been here for 24 hours. Uh, bike is still en route. My bike arrived damage, so we got <laughs> similar ties there. Um, we have some mutual friends who said that you have some very handy bike handling skills. Um, do you do much gravel racing? Have you done much gravel racing before? For me, personally, no. This is a very, very first time doing gravel, so we popping my gravel cherry. Um, but I've definitely played around on the dirt before. Like I say, I've never done a gravel race, but I have raced around Bianca. Yeah. So, you yeah. know, that is gravel, yeah. but on a road bike. I should say so. <laughs> and there's a few other races that love to pop in a bit of um, gravel here and there. Like there's a race in Sweden that has some gravel sections, and there's also some races in like Northern Holland with some gravel and cobbles, but you know, this is a very first proper gravel race. Yeah. Like, I've played around on mountain bikes as well here and there. And I did do a cyclocross race once or twice, but Nice. Yeah. Back in Oz? Mm, believe it or not, it was in Oregon. Oh wow. I did the Portland, Oregon CX race one time. I was randomly here on holidays with my mum, my niece, and I always wanted to try cross. So I managed to get a bike somehow. <laughs> I did this really small one in Golden Gate Park actually in San yeah. Fran. Yeah. And then went to do this one in, in Portland. Nice. <laughs> very cool. Um, so this, have you done Grand Fondos? I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, there's something unique about gravel racing here in the States in that they're mass start, they're gravel, they're, they're hectic, they're fun, they're chaotic, they're all of the above. And so I say Grand Fondo only because then you're going to have, you know, many thousand or, or huge group, anything yeah. like that. Yeah, I've kind of done Grand Fondo, you know, mass participation events before, like yeah. charity rides, stuff like that, but yeah. So cutting to the chase, any aspirations? Here in SBT? <laughs> well, you know, there's always the ego factor. So, of course, you know, it'd be fun to have a play and, you know, see if we can try and win something or get a good result. But at the same time, you know, I'm under strict instructions from the team not to make sure I destroy myself too much because we do have the Colorado Classic mm-hmm. a few days later. And already I pushed it to do the 100-mile length instead of just like the easy green option because I want to experience it enough without destroying myself with a full black run. Sure. As much as I'd love to do, you know, the black run. <laughs> but... um. Yeah, I'm just here to have fun. I'm here to represent Canyon as well. Like that was a big part of it. They all once asked me specifically and one of my teammates, Ella, to come out and race this. And, you know, I was 100% open to it straight away. And, yeah, it was so excited to see what it's all about because I've been racing on the road for a very, very long time. And, you know, any opportunity to do a different discipline, I always enjoy. And you talked about skills and obviously it is one of my strong points. So I enjoy things that test me and then hopefully can be something that can help me with my road cycling more. Nice. And you, I believe you're coming from altitude. You're coming from Lavinio, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. Um, give me a, a description of the year in general. I mean, I think Lavinio is sort of a, a mark in the road that from there going forward, you got Colorado and then uh, Worlds on the Horizon. How's, how's the year been? Yeah, overall, the year's been pretty good, I'd say, compared to the previous years. Like, I don't, I'm not doing, judging it from a results point of view because I guess my role within the team has changed a bit because if you look on paper, you'd say they've done nothing special. But in terms of 
these days I'm playing much more of like the road captain role within the team and really nice. like supporting the team from that aspect. And, you know, we got a lot of younger riders too. So I've kind of really embraced that role a lot more within the team. And, you know, consistently I say I've been pretty strong across the board. Like I've been able to come into every race, give what I need to for the team. And as a result, we've had some very great results within the team. You know, obviously Kazia, she won Amsterdam Gold Race, which mm-hmm. was a phenomenal effort. She also was second in OVO Women's Tour and we won a stage and like, that race in particular with the team was incredible. It's probably one of the best races we've had as a team and how we came together and helped produce that result and how Kazia also took the pressure and produced it too and then following to the Giro as well. Like we won the opening team time trial and had the pink jersey for four days and again, just the way that the team came together and rode and, you know, it's been really fun to be in that environment within the team with Canyon Tram Racing and stuff. So, so like I say, as a whole, from a headspace point of view and how I felt, it's been a really good year still a lot of big aspirations and I do want to get back onto the podium and back winning races because at the end of the day, that's one of the parts where we're in sport. We Mm -hmm. want to be on top. We want to be the best at what we do. But at the same time, you know, I also just want to keep developing a bit more as a rider and, you know, playing my part within the team because we know how important the team is. And then we have the world championships later in the year. Like that's a big, big goal. You know, Yorkshire, it's going to be massive, like Mm -hmm. probably one of the best world championships. I think I'll have the opportunity to race just from what they're talking about of the atmosphere. The course is fantastic. You know, it's a hard course, but it's kind of characteristics that can suit my strength. And, but as an Australian team as well, we have a great team. You know, we have the likes of Amanda Spratt, who's really kind of stepped up the last couple of years. We helped her get a silver medal last year at the world championships. Um, so yeah, lots to look forward to. Nice. Love it. Um, what's the date for Worlds? That's September and it's October. Normally it's the last weekend, week of September, the road race. Off the top of my head is 28th for the women of September. Yeah. But it starts from the one week before that with and the you, relay, team relay thing. Will you continue into racing into October or is that sort of the end of the end of the road? Uh, for me, I like to put my season finish at the World Championships. Um, Agreed. Yeah. The sport is definitely changing. The women's is taking a bit more of the same path as the men. So there are a handful of races. Yeah. After that, there's two races in Italy with Reggio Emilia and mm-hmm. one other of those Italian classics. And then there's that wonderful race in China. Yeah. But luckily we have plenty <laughs> of teammates that are happy and want to do those. So, you know, I'm going to draw the line, take a good break. And then next year, 2020 is a very big year with Tokyo Olympics on the horizon. So I want to be able to stop early, have a good break and then start my preparations. So I start the season strong because that's going to be really important. Nice. So taking a handful of all those things, um, including talking about the sport is changing. Um, we are here at a gravel race, which I mean, I realize is, is fun. And that's sort of the, the great aspect of it is that it's as fun or competitive or whatever adjective you want to put towards it. Um, that just is what gravel is all about. I feel like gravel's booming in the States. Um, you are from Australia. You live in Europe. You travel all over Europe. What what are your impressions in domestically, but the, are here in the States and also elsewhere? Yeah, with gravel racing, I think it's definitely something that's getting talked about a lot more. You know, not only the racing aspect, but just gravel bikes in general. You know, people are wanting adventure. They're wanting to get away from the road, get away from the traffic, get offline and disconnect as well. And, you know, gravel is that kind of perfect medium of, it's not as technical as mountain bike riding where you need a different skill set. And mm-hmm. sometimes the average person doesn't have the skill set to get through, you know, a lot of these mountain bike trails versus road, which road can get a bit monotonous sometimes, you know. And so I feel like it's that perfect medium where you can be on the beach if you want, you see a road, you're like, oh, that looks cool. Let's go down that trail and see where it takes us and not be afraid that, oh, you're gonna get punctures, you're gonna get this, that, whatever. So I think, 
particularly obviously I see in America, it's huge. I know in Australia as well, it's pretty popular. The racing scene is still, nothing's really kind of caught my attention that it's really going big, but I feel like it's going that direction. I reckon Japan has a pretty good scene yeah. as well because I know like, for example, Grand Jiro, the other mm-hmm. big one that Jiro, um, you know, do a lot of gravel races. They have one in Japan this year from memory. So it's definitely picking up globally. Like US is the leaders for sure. They're the ones which have some of the biggest and the best and, you know, the ones that you always see the attention. I feel like Europe's definitely lacking. Like nothing's caught my attention there. Like people are riding gravel bikes for adventure, but mm-hmm. the racing side, I'd say it's probably – the furthest behind of you know really taking it on but but you know it's definitely it's a huge market at the moment it's what a lot of people are excited about and you know it's fantastic that you know a few world tour teams and professionals are kind of dabbling in as well mixing it with the road because mm-hmm. i think that's helping grow the events as well and at the end of the day we want to get more people on bikes we want to grow the sport in whatever way possible and you know ultimately manufacturers want to sell more bikes so keeps growing the sport and more money in the sport and that's the ultimate goal, isn't it? Sure. So with a a magical crystal ball, do you see do you see any particular things happening? Um, I mean, is it just growth globally and then at certain rates in different places like booming in the States and, and growing in Australia and sort of a little bit stagnant in Europe or could you picture more and more gravel races that World Tour teams are going to go to? I mean, it's it's funny you see in the in the Grand Tours these days and, and for the past many, many decades, I guess more and more gravel, right? I mean, like these super epic finishes that go up, you know, so-and-so yeah. gravel climb. Uh, I don't know. What's your crystal ball say? I feel like there's definitely a change in the air and there are certain teams that are embracing that. Other teams are still very old school and will probably never change the mentality. <laughs> but, you know, I'm a big believer in cross-disciplines. I'm seeing more and more teams in particular, more so on the women's side than the men in terms of taking on multidiscipline athletes. I think that's going to help cross over as well of, you know, having more athletes crossing over between all of them, you know, from road to track. Well, I think track I'll put in a different category, but, you know, to mountain bike, to cross, to gravel, Mm -hmm. that's just got to become the norm. So at the moment you have pro mountain bike athletes, pro CX races and rode all in the one team. Like, for example, we've had it with Pauline Fram Prevo with our team with Caden Tram. Mm-hmm. Trek Factory Racing have done it with a number of athletes. Bowles Dolmans have done as well with a few specialized athletes. So it's all these manufacturer brands that are wanting it because then obviously it helps crossover athletes and grow their profile while also growing the brand's profile and everything else. But I feel like maybe soon we'll get pro gravel athletes as well that then come into that box that yeah. can help crossover. So I see that can be the way that it's going because as well, as you say, like, with road cycling, yeah, you have more and more races to try and be more epic, be a bit different. So you do need the skill set. So if more athletes can cross over to test their skills, it's also good. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, it's people want change in the sport as well. Like road cycling is always going to have its history. It's going to have its trademark big events. But you're seeing things like Hammer Series. There are people that want this change to make it more exciting, make it so people are still interested to watch it and be like, what's going to happen next? A short, high-paced thing. So for sure, I, I feel like, it's going to be become bigger in all areas, you know. Road is always still going to be there, mm-hmm. but then I feel like these smaller disciplines per se are going to just get bigger and bigger and, you know, greater traction, more sponsors involved and, again, become a similar level, maybe not as high as World Tour, but, you know, a level that people will look at and see professional athletes going into. I like it. Um, so let's talk about parity because I think, at the highest level, at the world tour level, male and female cycling, there's enormous parity. Or am no, I using imparity. the word? Imparity. Imparity, <laughs> correct. Um, 
there we're seeing in gravel like here enormous prize list and equal prize list here at SBT, which is unique and exciting and, and very cool. Um, I I often call professional male world tour cycling a, a, a blue collar sport. I mean, it's you know you're not getting the the salaries of these other major sports. How would you describe world tour female cycling? Um, and, and in what ways can we can we actually find that parity? Yeah, it's definitely you know as you say it's huge huge differences, but there are these big push for change, and I feel like there's a lot some nations which are very forward, and some nations which are still very stuck in the ages or certain organizations as well. Mm-hmm. But I feel like America, Australia, UK leading the way 100%. You know, you're seeing more and more of these races saying, all right, equal prize money. Um, look at Tour of California. I know Colorado Classics become a women's standalone event. Got mm-hmm. rid of the men and the highest level, like not only with money, but also like TV or not TV coverage, but live streaming, mm-hmm. great support, everything. Australia, Tour Down Under did the same, Cadell Evans Road Race. One of his biggest things I've spoken to Kiddo many times was making sure that women have a world-class event, want to be a world tour event, and also being on the same operational level as the men. <clears throat> so there's plenty of people that are pushing for that, but there's still obviously when we talk salary, that's the biggest difference. And, you know, it takes time because you need money into the sport, but it's like how do we then get that extra bit of money? Like why can the men have such huge budgets but the women can't get to see the same? And part of that is things like TV because people want to return the money, but it's also how you market it the best way. But it's fantastic to see things, you know, things like gravel racing, which is leading the way, saying equal prize money and it is equal distances because that's one thing where sometimes people say parity needs to be equal distances. Mm -hmm. It's not something I necessarily believe in because sure, women are much more enough capable of that. You know, easily we could go and ride three weeks grand tour if we really wanted to. But is that exciting? I don't believe so. Like we've seen too many races that go into that 160K mark and suddenly racing's not as exciting as a 100 to 140K race. Totally, You know, yep. that's my personal opinion, but there's plenty of people fighting, no, no, we need to do this, 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 and then we deserve to be paid the same. But we still put in as many hours training, as many sacrifices, you know, the level's getting higher and higher and higher. Like you can't go into a race underdone. You need to train properly for it and go to the race. So, you know, it's, it's women's sport is in an exciting place, the Women's World Tour, and, you know, with the reforms and having that minimum level, of teams is going to keep growing in the right direction. And I do believe in five years, the women's salaries are going to increase, but it still takes everyone to get on board. You know, it takes more and more race organizations to say, yes, we're going to give women the coverage. Like we don't need the full races shown. We need like, you know, the last hour. Mm-hmm. It's the exciting part. But at the same time, I do believe we're getting that a lot more respect as well. Like more and more of the men's pros know who the women are. They're like appreciating our performances, understand, you know, our strengths and, mm-hmm. So yeah, it's an exciting time, but as we say, you know, it's just something that's very slow moving. Sure. Yeah, I feel like it's often two steps forward, one back. Yeah. So going in the right direction, but at a sometimes glacial rate. Yeah. So uh, the UCI sometimes makes some poor decisions. Um, sometimes they make good decisions. Are there are there any really overt things right now that you see that that you would love to just be able to to knock on the door of the UCI and say, do this. You will, you will make the sport better. Yeah, for sure there's certain things like sometimes they need to grow bigger balls per se, you have to say that, <laughs> <laughs> like in terms of like getting more of the organizations in line. Like the perfect time is look at ASO. You know, mm-hmm. they're the biggest sporting organization in the world. Obviously the Tour de France, many big races, and they're the ones that are probably the least progressive. Like they're doing the right thing, 
in terms of having the women's races, but that's as far as it goes. You know, the line stops there. Like if you actually look at the back end support, it's like the two hard baskets, that old French mentality. Like I'd love to see UCI go to them and say, you know, get everything together and show the support properly. Cause I think for sure that's what's holding back. Like, cause they have the power to really help change the sport as well. You know, it's not that whole conversation. Like do we need to have the women's tour to France and really force that, but just in the race that they do want to back, do it properly and give the support that we deserve. Like that's one thing that's very, very frustrating. And also, you know, these things of like taking better control and looking at the health of the sport and the business of the sport and not just thinking about themselves. Because too often you see UCI, like if you read the the fine print, it's just about them a lot of the time. But, you know, there's plenty of things that they're doing and listening. Like I know from inside of the sport, there's been a handful of like the team owners or team directors of the women's teams that have been to the USA many, many times to help get the Women's World Tour of where it's going to go the right way. Like, So they understand as how they need to run the team from the director's point of view, but also making sure it's worth the team's while saying well, their World Tour to say mm-hmm. okay to a sponsor. If you're going to put in a million euro into the team, what are you going to get out of that? Yeah. Because I think that's for sure where the UCI has lacked as well a lot. Like the business model of cycling has always been terrible and that's why it's not sustainable, <laughs> yeah. you know. Like you just have to look at so many other sports where there's so many other rights involved, but there's like too many egos within the sport and it's just bring it in one and then for sure like the sport can grow a lot bigger or teams can be a lot more stable and, you know, not so many fallouts within sponsors and stuff like that. Yeah, yep. So given that the whole sport sort of operates under this veil of mystery, I mean, you know, you don't see the beginning of the race, they only show the final hour of the race or, you know, whatever the heck happens back in the UCI HQ. What do you suppose is the number one thing that fans don't know that makes the sport interesting? Um, from the team, I'd say a lot of the inside tactics, you know, unless you understand the sport, the average Joe Blow doesn't know, doesn't understand how the sport actually works. They see one person cross the line uh-huh. and they get the glory, but they don't understand the team aspect. I think it's becoming more common and more talked about, but still like that aspect, it's great when you have great commentators who help explain that, but that's definitely, you know, when I try to say to someone, hey, I helped my teammate get a gold medal at the Olympics or the World Championships or something, they're like, awesome, but where's your medal type sure. thing? Like people don't quite understand that. And it's a shame as well that we can't have as complete team sport like that. It would be cool to change so that, you know, the winner always has their team there. But um, that aspect and, you know, the personalities of the teams. Um, yeah, and, you know, what we're saying within the race, how close an RG Bargy gets. Like they're getting better with like onboard cameras and stuff like that. But I think that's one thing that's pretty interesting of, you know, even just the random rubbish we talk about, you know, like when you're rolling along, there's a break up the road and you're going at 30K an hour. It's like you have a good chat to like <laughs> maybe your friend, your teammate, whatever. And I think that's sometimes quite interesting that people like, you know, what actually goes on within the peloton when nothing is actually happening in the race. Sure. Yeah, there's <laughs> plenty of downtime in a race. Yeah, yeah. Um, or well, what happens back in the cars, you know, when you go back to your director or even between the directors, what happens there, I think is quite interesting. Like I hear stories from, you know, our director, Ronnie, you know, having another one saying, hey, coming to them, are you going to help us? Is that whatever? Like yeah. how teams try to talk to other teams. And There's yeah. so many freaking unwritten rules, which yeah. makes it so crazy. And it's yeah. not a sport of two teams going at each other or two yeah. individuals. It's yeah. just this like such a funny game of chess. Yeah. I like to say it's chess on wheels and a game of poker. <laughs> At the biggest level. Love it. Yeah. Um, you call Monaco home. Is that right? Um, yes, yeah. <laughs> land of the rich and famous. Again, cycling is a pedestrian sport. So how 
how is the culture there? I mean, when I when I hung up my wheels, Girona was booming and Monaco yeah. Nice was was definitely on the on the rise. What's the what is the cycling culture? It's pretty cool. You know, it's pretty big. Um it's different to the Girona culture. Like that's still definitely very, very cycling incest. But <laughs> but still a lot of cyclists. I'd say Monaco is the same, but at the higher level. Like I'm living just over the border in France, but I'm basically on the border of Monaco. But um there's so many cyclists around there. Like at the professional level, you have the best of the best there because there's various reasons why they're there. But it's also, you know, a fantastic training ground, 300 days of sunshine, 25 minutes to the airport. Like any given day, you can see Sagan on the road, Froomey, Rigoberto Uran. I think he's there sometimes. Um, you know, you name it, who's who. But not only that, you've got some other top professional athletes in sure. all disciplines, you know, from motorsport, Formula One, tennis players, everything. And you might see them at the gym, you might see them on the bike. But what fantastic is everyone has that successful, striving professional mentality. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really exciting because it's, you know, people have certain stigmas about various places or maybe you get distracted in the lifestyle of cycling. But I feel like in around Monaco on the Côte d'Azur, like it's got a pretty high level where people are respectful and even you have so many just like every day people riding around there as well. Like I know a lot of people that work within Monaco and like the casinos, valet, stuff like that, like for a group called SBM, you know, they're always riding a lot of the firefighters and the police. So I'll see them, you know, I might get pulled over my scooter for just a random check or something and be like, ah, you know, you might be police officers actually like also cyclists. So it's good to have friends like that. But it's a really cool culture and, you know, it's fantastic training grounds, like mountains galore, beautiful coastline. Like it's a pretty unique place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a pleasant end. Well, indirectly to to Perinice. Perinice is such a horrible race. Yeah. And you roll into to Nice and you're like, oh my yeah. gosh, this is such a beautiful spot. Yeah. Where it's meant to be sunny and then it always happens to rain for the last day of Perinice. Exactly. <laughs> and it's such an awful, terrible final yeah. stage. Yeah. Um, so spending some time on your website, you are interested in the culinary world and the, the style world. Um, food for obvious reasons because it's fuel, but then I know plenty of professional cyclists who, who treat it purely as f- fuel. And they, you know, you don't get the passion behind it. Um, where, where have those two interests come from? I think, well, fashion for starters and style that came from when I finished school. I didn't really know what I wanted to do, and then Dad kind of suggested, "Oh, you love to shop, you love fashion, this that. Why don't you study fashion?" So I was like, "Sure, why not?" There was a degree, um, one there. It's more a trade school than a university, but it's one where you like learn. Is like one that type of fashion schools anyway so I, I applied for that and I got accepted so while I was racing and sort of starting to see the world with that you know when I first came to America this sat at the same time I was studying fashion I loved it um never was able to complete it just because when I started traveling more and more you know it's a hands-on hands-on course so I was like I got to set four level learned the basics of like fashion design you know construction how to make it and all that and then it's just become that love you know I'm definitely a creative mind. Like I love all things to do with creativity and whether it's fashion or just looking at various design aspects of like a house or I don't know, anything. Like mm-hmm. that's more how my head works, not like so much books and numbers. So for me, um, that's how that started. And then I kind of dabbled a little bit in kit design and things like this. Nice. Something that I was interested in trying to do and I tried to do my own brand there for a little bit but realised, okay, if I want to do it properly, you know, that's also takes a lot of time. So then... I came up with the idea to do collaborations. You know, I was lucky enough to be with, you know, formerly it was with Velocio Shram and did a, had a chance to do a collaboration with them. Mm-hmm. And then with Rafa as well, we've done a collaboration with the Ode to the Sun collection. So nice. definitely something I'm interested in doing further and whether I do fashion design directly or maybe do like artistic direction where, you know, I love telling the story, uh-huh. playing with beautiful items and 
how to creatively tell that story and that's you know particularly the social media world these days you know it's something I could be interested in like that side of of fashion design and style and and then the food side that obviously came from learning how to cook by myself look after myself and I got bored of the same meal pretty quickly <laughs> like a lot of people and then you know I started really appreciating healthy eating you know clean eating and bit by bit it just developed from there like experimenting flavors and then it that's also where the creative side comes into, like how I played it up. Like how I played it up for myself is the same as I played it up for friends. Like I don't just play it up super nicely to try and impress them. Like I love that aspect too, piecing it all together, you know, just playing, experimenting and knowing that, okay, I need to eat healthy and good and it feels good and also look at recipes and how I can adapt it to make it healthier. And so that's where that all came. And I also, yeah, appreciate fine food. So always looking for restaurants, good coffee shops, wherever I travel and just taking all the flavors from around the world and, you know, yeah. putting that into my meals. Well, it is such a unique and fun and privileged position to, to be able to travel to all these places and call Monica home and travel throughout Europe and the world. And that's awesome. Um, yeah. So culinary travel tips for someone who lives out of a suitcase, like what's your, do you make coffee on the go or do you immediately find the best coffee shop or do you travel with like your favorite pastas or, or what do you got? <laughs> so normally I'm always searching for the best coffee shops and my trick is Google Maps become my best friend. Mm-hmm. Literally I write especially coffee or coffee roasters and then I'll find what's around, have a look, there'll be a few things that pop up. Although sometimes always scars me if it pops up says Starbucks. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, <laughs> you can judge yeah, I know, right? I'm like specialty <laughs> coffee. No, that's not specialty <laughs> coffee. But then from there I'll like kind of look and then you can find them on Instagram. So okay. for me that's like three key things. If it looks alright you're going to get something pretty decent. So that's always my travel tip. Anywhere you go, quickest way to find something good. And same with food as well. Instagram is one of my biggest tools to find best food from where I'm eating mm-hmm. or around, or like at least to get the final judge of if it's going to be good or not through people tag. So that's always been a good skill for that. Um, yeah, when I'm traveling, I have just a few comforts. I haven't gone into the whole bringing the coffee thing. I prefer just to find. Although one time I did bring my entire rocket espresso machine to a race. Oh my God. <laughs> that was commitment, but there was three reasons for it. <laughs> it was semi-local. So it was like a three hours away. So I went by car. Uh-huh. It was in France and it was a seven day tour and we're staying in the one hotel. So I thought it was worth the investment or of energy to bring it. And everyone was pretty happy that is badass. with me for doing it. So, But normally I love to bring matcha with me. I'm also a massive matcha, latte matcha tea fan. So yeah. normally we always have that and then maybe it's some various teas or, but the rest, yeah, I usually find it where I am, you know, and we're pretty lucky with the team as well. Like we have a slight team partner with a brand called Rapunzel, which is a lot of German like health food things. Mm-hmm. So we can always have our nut butters and nice. a lot of different grains like quinoa and stuff like that. So normally you can find everything when I'm traveling, but yeah, if I have the option, I'm always searching for, you know, the best kind of cool, funky kind of hipster type coffee shop or restaurant healthy, you sure. know, farm to table type place. Nice. Um, the States is good for it. How, and then it's funny because in Europe, like the best farm to table places are, are someone named Nona. And, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like the actual grandmother, grandfather, like, yeah. are, are you able to find the same? I mean, yeah, Europe's a culinary hotspot. I suppose it's as easy there as anywhere. Yeah. It just depends where we are. Some places are great, some places not. And yeah, normally like if I'm honestly for it races, you don't really have the chance to look that for coffee. Yes. Sure. Okay. You have the chance to go right. So that's always the first thing I look and I, my team are always asking me. So yeah. I feel like I take the responsibility uh-huh. there. But when we do have the option to eat, then then I feel that little bit of pressure because, you know, I myself pride myself in finding, you know, a good place. And if I don't know, like, oh, will it be good? Will it be not? Um, 
definitely it's always fantastic to come to America because it's like Australia, you know, a lot more open, you know, a lot more places like obviously Whole Foods. Um, depending where you are in America though, let's be honest, there's some sure. areas where for sure it's very, very hard to find good food. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, East and West Coast and places like Colorado, fantastic. But yeah, it just, it just depends where we are. Like, as you say, you know, Nonna and Papa, like in Italy, for sure, go to Tuscany, anywhere you go and get a fantastic meal. Um, the UK, again, okay, if you're in London, fantastic. Other places, not so much. But normally it's the big cities where you can find good things. I think more and more people are traveling the world, more and more expats are wanting to do things in different places. So it's becoming a lot easier to find these fantastic dining experiences. And whenever I have the chance to go out, then I definitely search for that because if I'm going to pay to go out for a good meal, I want it to be good. Sure. But yeah, then when we're at races, normally I just roll with it and deal with that and enjoy all the good food, like whether it's from my kitchen or with friends somewhere else, then then I take the interest and take the time to really find something good. It is a funny culinary rift and cultural rift. So like, yeah, in the States, you know, we love our whole foods and it's whole paycheck and it yeah. costs a lot and it's organic and wonderful. And when I was living in Girona, you know, it's, a, it's an all day adventure to go to the market and yeah. source your meat and your produce and your whatever. I mean, that's that you, you have a vendor for each of the things you have to get. Um, and, and it's sort of old movement versus new movement. And ultimately the delivery is what is a tasty meal? So exactly. Yeah, it is funny. It's like very Europe slow pace and so behind with so things like we joke with that with Monaco, everything's 10 years behind. Sure. Finally got this wicked, awesome health eating place with acai bowls and stuff. We're like, Oh my God, amazing. Yeah. But it's like, let's be honest, you can get it everywhere else in the world. <laughs> so get excited about small changes. But then like when I came to Colorado in May, I bought my German teammate, Lisa Klein, and she'd never been to America. And for her going to the supermarket, she's like, Oh my God, like just could, it was almost called process all the different variety of choices uh-huh. of everything. Things. So I think you take it for granted here, but then I think when you're in Europe, you kind of appreciate the slow life of stuff and, mm-hmm. you know, things coming straight from the farms as well. And yeah, just taking the time. But at the flip side, sometimes it's just like, oh, I want to find, you know, really good spices or the Asian meals and stuff like this, where sometimes it's a bit trickier to find. Totally. Yeah, we have, I would always bring it back to Walgreens, which is our enormous yeah. pharmacy here in the States. And if it's three in the morning and you need a pair of sandals and some Tylenol, you can go to Walgreens to get yeah. it. And if you need to do that in Europe at three in the morning, you're going to probably wait 36 hours yeah. and have to go to three different stores. And exactly. Do that on Sunday, no chance. Yeah, not a chance. <laughs> Mail, postcard? No, yeah. not today. Yeah. Okay. Um, in an effort to get us to this dinner roughly on time, which is not going to happen now. I apologize. Uh, wrapping up with three questions. One, favorite place to ride a bike. Two, favorite place, number one place you would like to ride a bike they've not yet ridden. And number three, living or otherwise, with whom would you like to ride a bike? Ooh. So one was where I haven't ridden. Or where I one ridden. is favorite place you have okay. ridden. Favorite place I have ridden has to be Japan. Sick. Love it. It's amazing. You know, from maybe not so much in Tokyo Center because it's crazy, but when you go in the countryside, Hakone area, yeah. I've been lucky to ride all over Japan and it's incredible. It's so beautiful. Nice. Like always in the fall, so I've had the autumn leaves. Like I was in the north in Akita last year and then down around Shimanami as well in the south. Like for me, just Japan is amazing. Awesome. Colorado is a close second though. I do love Colorado. Not going to lie. Um, place where I haven't ridden but really, really want to is Lake Bukai in in Siberia, in Russia. Whoa. Yeah. It looks super cool. It's the deepest freshwater lake in the world. Okay. I've always been intrigued by Russia. Something about it. Lake Bukai looks, it's nature. I'll probably go with a mountain bike more than a road bike from what I can judge. <laughs> but it's just, it looks amazing beauty and just somewhere completely different to where I've ever ridden. Where is it? Uh, oh. Lake Bukai in Siberia. So like way north. 
No, it's actually in kind of southern Siberia. It's close oh, to the no Mongolian way. border. Okay. So Google it. Like, Spell yeah. it. Bakai, B-A-K-A-L-I, K-A-L-I, I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah the winter freeze completely over and you can do an ice marathon. All right. Fun fact. Sick. <laughs> and then who would I want to ride with, dead or alive? Or fictitious. You could be like... Snow White. <laughs> Could be or, interesting. <laughs> well, it's funny, we had this conversation just recently, um, not riding, but having lunch or dinner. And someone said Hitler. I was like, that's interesting. Oh, my. For like a leader. Sure. Someone yeah, who was yeah, a yeah. dictator. But I'd say Coco Chanel, simply because, you know, she was one of the people who shaped fashion. She helped change the boundaries. You know, she helped take women out of those corsets and put mm-hmm. them into like functional things. I just think she's a very fascinating person and just what she did in her life and obviously the brand still today is an incredible brand and a brand that will never disappear, you know. Mm-hmm. So from my fashion side, I just loved, you know, just interesting to meet her, what went through her head like from the creative side mm-hmm. and just, you know, how she stood up and helped change the face of fashion and everything else. I love it. Well... All good answers. Hope you get to go for that bike ride up in Siberia. Um, Best of luck this weekend. Thank you. And more so at USA Pro Challenge in the whole rest of the year. Thanks. Can't wait. Gonna be good. All right. Thanks, Tiffany. Thanks. Once again, I want to say thanks to Tiffany for taking the time in a busy few days before some big late summer races on her calendar to have a chat. We did make it to dinner in time in case you were worried. Fret not, my friends. And thanks goes out to The Feed for supporting this pod. Again, for a full lineup of all your untapped needs, try a personally curated box using thefeed.com king, which will immediately offer you 15% savings or simply use the code KING10. To save 10% instantly on everything else store-wide, check them out at thefeed.com. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for taking the time. And until next time, Remember, please enjoy the ride.